Today we're continuing in a sermon series I started a few weeks ago called A Systematic Teaching on Spiritual Warfare and Deliverance. And this is something that I felt the Lord wanted me to speak on um, and to talk about deliverance and spiritual warfare for uh, an extended period of time. The word systematic means you break down a complex topic down into smaller parts that are easier to understand, and it builds kind of precept upon precept. Um, and so there's four, I believe the Lord was telling me there's four sections to this, haven't written them all out yet, but there's like 101, 201, 301, 401, okay? They get a little more in-depth, a little more detailed, a little more complex uh, topics, you know, as we go, and we're still in the 101 phase. So a few weeks ago, I preached a message called uh, 101, uh, world, world, Warfare Worldview, and we talked about why is there warfare in the first place, not only in our world naturally, but in the heavens. The Bible, if you read the Bible, it is a book of warfare, not only in the natural, but in the supernatural. And the New Testament confirms this and talks about it so much. Ephesians 6.12, our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, okay? This is what our battle, this is what our struggle is uh, for us in, in, uh, as Christians, And so we talked about that. How could a good and loving God allow an enemy, sin, pain, suffering, evil in the world in the first place? Why is he allowing it to go on? Why do we have to fight these battles all the time? Spiritually, sometimes in the natural, fighting against, you know, things that are suppressing the truth of God in our lives. And if you miss that message, and if those questions intrigue you, you really need to go back and listen to that message Uh, because, again, this all kind of builds on on one another. And that message is really foundational for helping you understand what in the world is going on, okay? Why do things work the way they do? Why does God allow so much? How does this work? Um, And so today we're talking about what I'm calling session 102, okay? 102, know thy enemy. Know thy enemy. And so today we're going to be studying Satan, doesn't that sound exciting? So when you go have lunch or dinner with the in-laws or your friends, family later, you say, what did you talk about at church today? We talked about Satan. It was really fascinating. We talked about Satan at church. Why are we going to spend a whole session thinking about the enemy, thinking about Satan? Sun Tzu, who was a famous Chinese military leader, strategist, and philosopher uh, who lived many centuries before Christ, actually, wrote a very famous literary work called The Art of War. And uh, it's very well-known. Military people read it. Lots of other people read it because there's a lot of wisdom and knowledge in this book. And this is a famous quote. Actually, that quote, know thy enemy. How many have heard that quote? Got to know thy enemy, know thy enemy. It actually came from Sun Tzu and from this book. The full quote translated into English goes something like this. If you know the enemy... And know yourself. You need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. As I was thinking about this, I feel like most of the American church is living in that third part there. 
They don't really know who they are in Christ, and they don't really know the enemy they're facing. And so they read about all this victory and all this amazing things that God's word promises us and that Jesus promises us, but we're not seeing the victories in our lives. We're living defeated Christian lives. We're just as depressed and anxious and and full of worry and fear as, as everyone else who doesn't even know Jesus, okay? So how can we live this victorious life? He said, if you know your enemy and you know yourself, it's really important to know who you are in Christ, which we're Lord willing going to talk about in the next session of this series. And you really need to be here for that because that is going to be a powerful, powerful uh, weekend. But today we're going to talk about the enemy. We need to know who our enemy is, why he's doing what he's doing, and how he does it. If we want to be victorious. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11. The apostle Paul writes. In order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. He's saying. The apostle Paul is saying. We first century church Christians. We are not unaware of the schemes, tactics, strategies of our enemy, Satan. We're not unaware that there's a spiritual enemy. We're not unaware that there's a devil. He's very real. He's our spiritual enemy. All of his forces of evil are our spiritual enemy. And we're not unaware of their schemes, tactics, and strategies because we don't want to be outwitted by him. Scripture says he's the most cunning, the most crafty. He is the smartest, most deceitful thing, person, being that's ever lived. And he's so good and so deceitful that most of the time you don't even know he's doing what he's doing and that's what makes him so dangerous. And that's why we need to study him today. And I just pray right now, Holy Spirit, that today veils would be ripped off and we would see how much This dude is messing with our lives on a daily basis. That we would be awake and sober and alert and keep watch as the New Testament says again and again and again. Hosea 4 verse 6 says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. When it comes to spiritual warfare, ignorance is not bliss. It's death. You will be destroyed when you don't realize what's coming against you. And I hope by the end of this message, you will know why that is. So who is this enemy? Why does he do what he he does? And how does he operate? That's what I want to talk about today. How does he do what he does? Genesis chapter 3, we're going to read 1 through 7. This is the third chapter of the book. This is where he's first introduced. It says this, now the serpent, the Hebrew word here is nahas. Can you say nahas? Nahas. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say You must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, Nahas, we may eat from fruit from the fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden 
and you must not touch it or you will die. Here comes the lie. Verse 4, you will not certainly die. The serpent, Nahas, said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, if you didn't know anything about anything, grew up on a desert island, you came to the mainland, somebody handed you a Bible, you just started reading. You would hit Genesis chapter 3, you'd be like, okay, there's a snake talking to some people, okay. Oh, they ate this fruit, that's apparently bad, I don't know what's happening, right? And then by the next chapter, their kids are killing each other. (laughs) Then by two chapters later, Genesis chapter 6, we're only six chapters into the Bible, it says that mankind had become so evil, the only inclination of their hearts was only evil all the time. Now what I find interesting between those chapters is after this little moment in chapter 3, we we don't really see mention of the snake. It's like this snake comes in. Did he hold a gun to anyone's head? Did he force anyone to do anything? No. He just presents a thought, a suggestion. Then he's out. And then that takes root, and then people start doing things that they shouldn't be doing. And then we don't even see him again until chapter 6. That's very interesting. Some people in our day and age, we know intuitively because of Christian culture down through the ages, oh, this is the devil, right? This is the devil. That's what we assume. And then that makes some people go, what makes him so bad? This This is like the cute little garter snake. In your yard, how many of you think snakes are cute? Come on. No? Not one? Come on. All right. Some of them are. How many of them, they're evil, you hate them, you want to stomp their heads every time you see them? Yeah. That's because he's wired in us. He's put enmity between us and them. Anyways, this was not just an innocent little garter snake. This was something else. And I want to paint this picture for you. We know that because Revelation 20, 1 and 2 confirms it for us. It says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key of the abyss and holding in his hand uh, a great chain. He seized the dragon. Everybody say dragon. That ancient serpent. Everybody say serpent. Who is the devil. Everybody say devil. Or Satan. And bound him for a thousand years. Revelation 21 and 2, verse 2 here, mentions almost every name mentioned for Satan in Scripture. It says, by the way, guys, this is the same guy. I'm making it unmistakably clear. There is one enemy at the head of the kingdom of darkness. His name is Satan, the devil, the ancient serpent, the dragon. The word Satan In Hebrew, Satan or Satanus in Greek means the adversary. It just means the enemy. And that's his first, that's what he's first presented as other than the serpent in scripture. The word devil in Greek is diablos. It means slanderer, the accuser. 
He accuses, he used to accuse people to God. Now he accuses you to yourself because God, he's been cast out of heaven and God won't listen to him anymore. Now he accuses you to himself. That's important for you to yourself. It's important for you to know the gospel. So when he's accusing you to yourself, you can preach the gospel to him and to yourself and be free from the condemnation, guilt, and shame he's trying to cast on you. And he's also known as this ancient serpent, the ancient serpent, Nahas in Hebrew. Let's talk about that word Nahas for a minute. It's interesting. It comes from the root word Nahash. Do you see how similar they are? Nahas, Nahash, Nahas, Nahash. Say it with me. Nahas, Nahash. Nahas means snake. That's all it means. Nahash means Shining one, luminous. These words are related. In fact, uh, nahas in Hebrew for snake, it's that same word is used in the Chaldee language to talk about copper or brass because of their shiny appearance. That's how related these words are. So it's a snake, but there's a connotation of being shiny, a luminous, a, a shining one. Now, push pause on that, and we're going to jump to another word in Scripture. Isaiah chapter 6, he sees uh, the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple. And he says, uh, above the Lord, kind of encircling the throne, are seraphim in English. If you read the Hebrew, it's just seraph. So seraph is, is also plural in Hebrew, okay? Seraph, or... It's like moose, okay? You know what I'm saying? Deer. It's not deers. I can't use that because everybody around here says deers. It's all these deers out there. It's like moose, okay? You have one moose, you have many meese. Moose, I mean. So you have one seraph, you have many seraph, but in English we say seraphim. Here's my point. The word seraph, it's an angel, high-ranking angel, Six wings, two covering the face, two covering the feet. Two, they're flying. They're saying, holy, holy, holy. 24-7, 365. The word seraph means, do you know what it means? It means fiery serpent. That's its primary meaning. Fiery serpent. Secondary meaning is burning one. Burning like on fire, but burning like... uh, you know, if the sun's burning, it's burning, but it's also what? It's also shining. It's also luminous, isn't it? It's projecting light. Burning with passion for the Lord. It has that connotation as well. That's what the word seraph means in Isaiah 6. Why are we talking about seraphs and related to the snake Nahas? Because they were used interchangeably in the ancient Hebrew language. Let me show it to you in Numbers 21. This is the story where the people sin and God let snakes come in and start biting the people and they're poisonous as a form of judgment. Numbers 21 verse 6, it says, The Lord sent fiery serpents, seraph nahas, among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Okay, seraph nahas, fiery serpents. But jump down to verse 8, Numbers 21 verse 8. 
And it says, and this is where the Lord says to Moses, put a snake on a pole and lift up the pole. And everybody who sees the snake on a pole will be saved. You guys remember that story? By the way, that's a, that's a, a proclamation of the gospel. It's a pole. What was Jesus crucified on? Pole or a cross, right? A stake. And there's a snake. The cross will overcome the poison of the snake. That's what that's all about. So he lifts up the snake. That's Jesus referenced that just as Moses lifted up the, the, the snake in the wilderness on the pole. So I'm going to be lifted up, right, and draw them into myself. And so he tells Moses, put this snake in a pole. Everybody who sees it will live. But look at the word there in the Hebrew. It says, and the Lord said unto Moses, make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole and it'll come to pass. Everyone bitten when he looketh upon it shall live. But the word fiery serpent there, it's not, it's not seraph nahas. It's just seraph. But everyone knew, oh, that's not just a burning angel, right? That's a fiery serpent, a poisonous snake. What's my point? All of these words are related. Satan is called a a serpent for a reason. And I think when you put all those together, this was not just an innocent little garter snake in Genesis chapter 3. This was a powerful, high-ranking angel. I believe a seraph-type angel. Ezekiel, as we're going to see in a minute, calls him a cherub. Cherub is another rank of angel. A lot of scholars, I won't say most scholars, but a lot of scholars believe Satan was one of the highest ranking angels, perhaps the highest ranking over all the other angels. Because the word seraph means fiery serpent, remember in Isaiah 6, you can't see their faces. So if you could see their faces, what would they look like? We always assume a person. And yet in Ezekiel and Revelation, it talks about some of the cherubs, the four living creatures. They have, this one has a face like an ox. This one has a face like, a, like an eagle. This one has a face like, I believe it's a lion is the other one. So a lot of scholars believe actually that the seraphs are a rank of angel, very high ranking, that actually they have limbs like a man. Those other living creatures had bodies like a man, but they had a face of a different kind of creature. A lot of scholars believe that uh, seraph angels had bodies like men, six wings, but faces like a serpent. So just dwell on that. Here's my point. This was not an innocent little garter snake. Could he have possessed a garter snake and made him talk? Sure. Absolutely. But it starts to make more sense when you realize that's not just what this was. When God curses him and says, you're going to crawl on your belly now. Wait a second. Snakes already crawl on their belly. Yeah, they do now. So perhaps, perhaps snake-like face, six wings, arms and legs like a man. Very luminous, illuminating light, powerful, high-ranking angel. It's fallen to the earth. He tricks mankind, and perhaps his punishment is, uh, you don't got arms and legs now? Stripping you of your wings, and you're going to crawl on your belly. Just let that simmer. Let that marinate. I want to show you a few more passages, and I I just want to show you what Scripture says about who he is. That he was created as a high-ranking angel. Isaiah 14, 
I'm going to read a couple of verses at the beginning, then we'll jump through 12 through 15. But this is an Old Testament prophecy, and something you have to understand about the most of the Old Testament prophecies, they almost always had a double meaning. So there was a meaning for their generation, and then there's a meaning for the end times, when it's talking about the great and terrible day of the Lord. So most of the time in the Old Testament, they're talking about, uh, like, here in a few years, Nebuchadnezzar's going to come down, it's going to be a great and terrible judgment of God, and this whole nation, this temple's going to be destroyed. And by the way, that's going to happen again at, at the, in the end times. Okay, not Nebuchadnezzar, but we're going to be surrounded, and we're going to be destroyed, right? So in a similar way, there's a meaning for their generation, there's an eternal meaning. And so it's talking about the king of Babylon. Ezekiel talks about the king of Tyre. And they're talking about men, but then you'll notice the language shift, and it's like, wait a second, that can't be true of a man. And it's double meaning. They're talking about what I believe is the principality, Satan controlling the man who's in power. And so Isaiah starts out, in verses uh, 14, verses 3 and 4. On the day the Lord gives you relief from your suffering and turmoil and from the harsh labor forced on you, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor, the oppressor he calls him, has come to the end. How his fury has ended. Then jump down to verse 12. Still talking about the same person or entity, right? How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. A person cannot fall from heaven. Do you see how the language shifts? So now we're talking about something else. I believe the principality who was controlling the king of Babylon. Morning star there is is translated in some English translations as Lucifer. That's another name for Satan. Lucifer means shining one, light bearer, morning star. Again, created originally to, to shine the light and the glory of God. He says, you have been cast down to the earth. You have once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. In prophetic language, stars very often refers to angels, okay? You said in your heart, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, above all the other angels. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. Zaphon was an opposing mountain. It was like an enemy stronghold compared to Jerusalem. So I'm going to set myself up as an enemy or a, a competitive, uh, a competitor to the Lord God. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds and I will make myself like the Most High. I will be God. This is who he is. He has pride. New Testament says conceit is the sin of the devil. Pride and conceit. He wants to be God. He wants to be his own God and have people and have other entities worship him. So now, Ezekiel 28, a very similar passage, starting in verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And here's where it changes. And this is where we get, okay, he's not just talking about a man. You were in Eden, the garden of God, okay? So this was written in Ezekiel, I don't know, what is that, 600s, 500s BC. This dude, king of Tyre, was not in Eden, the garden of God. Do you see what I'm saying? Double meaning, okay? And so now he's prophesying to not only the the king who is under the power of Satan. You know when, when Peter said, surely this will never happen to you, Jesus, he said, get behind me, Satan. Doesn't that freak you out, by the way, and make you like, 
have the fear of the Lord, like, I hope Jesus never calls me Satan. What's my point? It was Peter, but he was operating under a lie of Satan. And Jesus was speaking. Was Jesus even speaking to Peter? Let that sink in. Or perhaps Satan was right there tempting Peter. Peter wasn't aware, agreed with that lie. And Jesus is looking at Peter, but he's speaking to Satan. Yeah, get behind me. So God's looking at the king of Tyre and the king of Babylon, but he's saying, hey, Satan, I know you're the one pulling the strings here, and I'm going to speak to you. He says, you were in the Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And then he lists all the precious stones. This was your covering. So he was covered in precious stones. Beautiful, luminous, amazing creation of God. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. So he has timbrels are like flutes and pipes. So he has musical instruments. And so some scholars have reasoned that he was like the worship leading. You know, all the angels, they're up there singing 24-7. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. They're singing a new song. And heaven has order just like the earth. And so high-ranking angel who apparently has his timbrels and pipes, and some scholars have said was the worship leader of heaven. He says, you were the anointed cherub who covers The anointed cherub. Cherub's another rank of angel. Who covers. The cherubim on the ark were covering the mercy seat. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You were in God's presence. You walked back and forth among the fiery stones. You're right in the throne room. As close to God as anyone can get. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. Until iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading. You became filled with violence within. And you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profound thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground, so on and so forth. So you became prideful. You became conceited, very similar to Isaiah 14, and God cast you to the earth. Okay? So we talked about this week one originally created as a good, beautiful, powerful, majestic angel of God. Apparently angels have free will just like we do. He sinned. He wanted to be God. He was kicked out of heaven. He was cast to the earth. Okay? If you want to know more about why, why, why all of that, go back and listen to the first week because we talked about all of that. And so... We are not messing with, our enemy is not some mortal person. Our enemy is a spiritual entity. He's extremely powerful. He's extremely smart. He's cunning and deceptive. And some of you have been duped by people before, and you thought, wow, how could a person be that good and that deceptive? I didn't even know it. Now, Take that exponentially times a million, and we're talking a high-ranking angelic being that is that cunning and that deceptive, okay? You need to be aware of who this person is. So why is he against us? Why is he waging war against us? 
What's his goal? What's his purpose? What's his aim? Well, Revelation chapter 12 sheds some light on that. And I'm going to read verses 3 through 17. We're going to skip a few in there, but I'm going to read this. It says, Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. So who's the dragon? Satan. We know this. Its tail swept a third of the stars. Prophetic imagery, stars are what? Angels. So he's sweeping a third of the angels out of heaven with him, which means they're partnering with him in what he's wanting to do. It says this, the dragon stood in front of the woman who is about to give birth. This is representative of the nation of Israel conceiving Christ, all right? I believe through the whole history leading up to Christ's coming, so that it might devour her child the moment he is born. He knew the gospel from Genesis 3. He knows God's going to bring through the woman and eventually through Abraham one man who's going to crush his head. So he's, he hates the nation of Israel. He hates them because he, up until Jesus comes, he wants to obliterate them, genocide them to try to stop Jesus from coming. Because when Abraham comes, God reaffirms the proto-evangelium from Genesis 3.15. And he says, this Savior will be through you, Abraham. Right? Okay, now I know I need to take this guy out. I need to take his family out. So he hates the nation of Israel. I believe he still hates the nation of Israel because they just remind him of Jesus. They are his blood relatives. He hates them. And so he's trying to stop Jesus from coming. He can't do it. She gives birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God into his throne. I'm going to skip a few verses. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough. They lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And so it makes explicitly clear the third of the stars being swept out, those are the fallen angels that partnered with him in the rebellion. They're all cast down to the earth now. Now, jump down a few verses to verse 12. It says, he is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Satan knows the Bible better than you do. He knows God's word and he knows it comes true. Even demons believe and shudder. And so he knows what's coming. He knows his time is short. He's filled with fury. And verse 13 says, When the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who given birth to the child. Okay, I can't kill Jesus. I can't get him. He's lived actually I did kill him and it didn't work, right? Then he rose and he ascended to heaven, so I can't mess with him anymore. I'm going to go after the woman, which represents the people of God. And it confirms it in verse 17. It says, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. So, verse 17 is very important. This enraged dragon couldn't get Jesus, couldn't get to God, because he hates God. He is God's adversary. 
So he went off to wage war against who? Against all the atheists out there? Against all the unbelievers? No, who's he waging war against? Me and you. Those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And I would say, yeah, so if you're coming to faith, I've heard testimonies, stories of people, oh, I just feel like my life's really terrible. I feel like I need to go to church. I'm wanting to go to church. And man, bad stuff keeps happening. The car breaks down. They can't get to church. They can't get to church. Finally, they do. They get saved. What is that? He sees what's happening. He sees the Holy Spirit working on those people's lives. He's trying to keep them from believing in Jesus. Then they get saved. Does that war end? Oh no, that war has just begun. Does Satan come after new believers? Oh, you better believe it. Because you are a a baby Christian. You're not rooted and established in love. You're not rooted in the word yet. And if he can get that seed while still on, you know, the rocky soil, he can cause you to just have shallow faith and dry up. And so he's waging war against pre-believers. He's waging, he's waging war against those in the womb, right, who are getting ready to be born again. He's waging war against new believers. He's waging war against all the believers who are starting to grow in their faith. He wants you to stop growing in your faith. And I'm here to tell you today, the more you wake up to who you are in God, and the more you go after God's calling on your life, he wages war against you. He steps it up. Can't be having that. I got to take them out. We are in a war, people. I am your drill sergeant today. Our enemy is very nefarious. He is very powerful. And we need to know who he is. We need to know why he's doing what he's doing. And we need to know how he does it so that we can win. It is not enough. It is not enough for you to go, I believe in God. God in control, he'll take care of me. Said many a defeated Christian. Then they get bitter against God because they feel like he's not doing what he thought, what they thought he should do. And the truth is, they're not doing their part. They're not being faithful. They're not going to church very often. They're not reading their word. He knows the Bible better than you do. You better learn the word of God. You better know your enemy. You better know who you are in Christ. And not only what's available to you, God's given it all to you if you're a believer. You got it all. You got the heavenly, you got the arsenal of heaven. But here's the thing about God, and we'll probably get into this next week. You gonna use that? You gonna use what I gave you? And if you don't, God wants to teach you how to fight. And he doesn't teach you that by doing, fighting all your battles for you. If, if that was how it worked, the day you got saved, you might as well vanish, instant rapture, and you're in heaven. Wouldn't that be easy? Don't, isn't that how we all wish it was? Because we wish it was easy. Because we're lazy and complacent. We just want easy lives. Isn't that true? Can we all just be honest with ourselves? I just want to microwave this. How do you defeat Satan with this microwave? Can I just push a few buttons and he gets defeated? Is that how this works? This is not how it works. So, he's enraged. He hates us. You know why he hates us? We remind him of God. We're created, he hates all people. We remind him of God. We're created in the image of God. Scripture doesn't say he was created in the image of God. Mankind was created in the image. He hates us. 
He hates us. He can't get to God. God's all powerful. He knows that. I can't actually harm God. He knows that I can't pull God down. He knows that. So if somebody wanted to hurt you and you were Superman invincible, but your kids were mortal, what would they do to hurt you? Kill your kids. Or perhaps even more nefarious, deceive your kids into thinking they're better than you. And so your kids listen to them and your kids up hating, end up hating you. Well, that's pretty jacked up. And that's what he's doing. And he knows the end. He knows there's a lake of fire prepared. But he wants to drag as many people there as he can with them. That's what he's doing. And listen, fallen angels, demons, they don't sleep. They have nothing to eat. They have nothing to do but wage war on you. And they are good at what they do. And these are ancient beings. All the time in the history of the world to learn every language, to know every trick, to study your life. You know, Caleb brought an awesome message a few weeks ago and he was joking about, you know, maybe... Is there a de- demon behind every bush, you know? And, ma- you know, probably not. And he, that was hilarious when he was talking about that. Is there a demon behind every bush? Probably not. Is there a demon or a fallen angel behind every thought that's not of God? Ooh, now that's a different question, isn't it? And we'll talk about the details of that more later in this series. But that's how prevalent their presence is. And you need to be aware of it. You need to be aware of it. So, speaking of, how does he do what he does? How does he wage war? Okay? And this is real, really where the rubber meets the road. So we know he's powerful. We know he's got a legion of, of, of demons and other fallen angels that he's working with, operating with. By the way, Jesus said, a kingdom divided cannot stand. He was speaking in relation to the kingdom of darkness. So that means the kingdom of darkness is well-ordered and works in unity. Are there probably skirmishes and infighting from time to time? Yeah. But if they don't work together, they're not going to accomplish very much. So they, there is file, there is rank, and they are organized. So do I believe, just as God has assigned angels to you, which I absolutely believe, has the enemy assigned demons and minions to you? Oh, absolutely. If you want more insight into that, go read The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And for some reason, every modern Christian likes that book. And we like to read and postulate, like, oh, this is probably how it works. But then you start actually talking about spiritual warfare and deliverance, and everybody freaks out. I'm not sure I want to hear about this. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. You're kind of weird. But you like C.S. Lewis Screwtape's letters, right? Yeah, that's a great book. I love that book. Because intellectually, I like to think about these things. But when you're faced with the demonic in your life, all of a sudden, my paradigm's being blown. Demonic spirits are real. Ah. Yes, they're real. Okay? And so go read that book if you want more insight into... Your personal demons, perhaps, is a good way to say that. So how does he do what he does? How does he operate? This is really 
where we start getting nitty gritty and where it matters because now we're talking about there's this general in the opposing army coming against you. What tactics and strategies is he using? Because if we know that, we can outsmart him. We're not unaware of his schemes so that he may not outwit us. So he may not outwit us. So his two main methods, and as we go on in this series, we'll get super nitty-gritty into lots of specific strategies within these two categories. But these are the two main categories of the ways that he works, okay? And I'm going to tell you what they are, and then we're going to talk about them. Number one is deception. This is his number one tool, okay? His number one strategy, deception. Number two is intimidation. And I believe there's an order that these come in. And first comes in deception. He doesn't want you know, knowing he's there. He doesn't want you knowing how he operates. He doesn't even want you knowing when he's fully controlling the game. He doesn't even want you knowing that he's fully controlling. He wants you thinking you're just living your life. That's deception. And once you become aware, as we're all becoming aware today, <laughs> then he's going to move to intimidation to try to push you back, to try to get you to not fight the spiritual battles that you're called to fight. And so let's talk about these. Number one, his main method is deception. Genesis chapter 3, he's lying from the get-go. Cunningly deceptive. The word serpent was more crafty than the other wild animals in the NIV. The word crafty there, the King James renders it subtle. S-U-B-T-I-L. When you look at the definition of that word, do you know what it means? Subtle, cunning, extremely smart, but he's subtle about it because the more subtle you are, the more it just seems like you're not a bad dude. And we see a picture of that in Genesis 3. Oh, hey, whoa, oh, really? Oh, hey, think about this. All right, see you guys later. Subtle. Man, that's decept. That's tricky, man. And that's how he works. Deception. John eight forty four. You. This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus gives him a few more. Names here, a few more titles, liar and the father of all lies. Deception is his main weapon. Second Corinthians eleven fourteen says, and no wonder, it's talking about false teachers and preachers, they masquerade as if they're telling the truth, right? They're they're projecting light into the world. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Satan was an angel of light, literally. Then he fell. Do you know what most, most, most false religions or occult religions promise you and promise people who buy into them? And I'm talking New Age. I'm talking, uh, you know, all the occult witchcraft, Wiccan, it's good witchcraft, you know, um, Freemasonry. Do you know what all these things promise? Ooh, there's secret knowledge 
that you don't have. And if you get involved in this and you learn this, oh, you'll get more and more secret knowledge. You'll get, they all want to talk about illumination. They want to talk about being enlightened, the enlightenment. Christians don't get enlightened. We get revelation. The Spirit of God reveals to us all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are not found in some occult religion. They are found in Jesus Christ, and he's opened it up. It's public knowledge. It's a, it's a freaking library. Pardon my French. Public library in Christ. Delve into Christ and get all the secrets of wisdom and knowledge. There is a secret wisdom. There is a secret knowledge. The Lord God says, I confide my secrets in those who fear me. But we have the mind of Christ, Scripture says. If you have Jesus, you don't need anything else. You need Jesus and your Bible, and that's it. If you start adding to the Bible, Mormonism, hey, Joseph Smith, oh, I got all this extra revelation. Oh, I wrote another book about it. Why is it even necessary? We have the gospel. We don't need another gospel. And Galatians says something about another gospel. Well, an angel appeared to me and gave Well, Galatians also says something about even if an angel from heaven appeared to you. I believe Joseph Smith very well could have seen an angel. But it was not a good angel. Did you know he was into practicing divination before that experience? Did you know that? What does divination open you up to? The demonic realm. Do you know people in the new age and other drugs? <laughs> oh, it's all good. It's all positive. My spirit guides, they tell me good things. They make me feel good. Hmm. Different lures to catch different fish. Some people get into that dark, gothic, the really intense occult stuff, and they like that, and it's demented and twisted. And some are like, no, my spirit guide, let's open my chakra, the third eye, which is opening yourself to demonic power. That's what that is. And it's false power. These are false gods. And I need you to know when we say false gods or false power or false gifts of the spirit, the spirit, (laughs) it's a false spirit. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm saying it's evil power. Is there power in it? Oh, yeah. The false gods, they're real gods, lowercase g. They're fallen angels. In the Old Testament, it calls them sons of God. Elohim, the council, the the fallen angels, or all the angels, really. And some fell. Jesus has all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus gives us good spiritual gifts. I'm convinced one of the reasons in our culture so many people are running, flocking to to New Age spiritism and all the other different kinds of occult spiritism is because the church is so daggone powerless because we're believing a stronghold of the enemy called unbelief and cessationism, and we don't talk about spiritual gifts. We don't operate in spiritual gifts. And people know it's innate. There's a God. 
and there's spiritual things going on. And then when their friends dabble in new age or occult, they're burning sage, and, and they get some spiritual power, they're like, oh, that, oh that's cool. I'm going to go check that out. And they hear the stories and they go, oh, I know this is real power. This cool, weird stuff's happening. It's prophetic. It's, it's false prophetic. It's evil prophetic. Okay? Holy Spirit gives us good spiritual gifts, and it's the same uh, type of thing because Satan's counterfeiting God. And the true spiritual gifts make us go, oh, God's real. <laughs> Not, oh, the universe is real. The universe will take care of me. The universe doesn't give a crap about you, okay? It's innate matter. But those demons, oh, they want to control you. Yeah, that's what that's about. I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, sorry, Lord. That's for later. That's for later. This is for later sermons where we'll get real detailed in this stuff. So, Jesus in the Bible. That's it. Do you know how many Christian cults have formed? Christian cults. Oh, we believe in Jesus. It's like, hey, say his name, Jesus. All right, now we can do all this weird stuff. And it just mm, plunges people into ruin and depravity. Yeah, all right. No, okay. So, he masquerades as an angel of light. He makes his lies appear good so we will believe them and agree with them. If I told you something totally bogus, you're not going to believe me. But if it's a half truth, that true part, makes it sound real good. Then you'll buy into it. He knows what he's doing. Remember week 101, a few, few weeks ago, we talked about spiritual laws. He's fallen to the earth. God's letting this play out. And God's a good God. He's set limits. He apparently can't force us to do what he wants. Apparently, the way this works, and we'll get more light shed on this in the next session when we talk about authority and who we are in Christ. But apparently to get power over us, he has to get us to go along with him. He has to get us to agree with him. And the moment we agree with him, now we've empowered him. We're under God's authority till we agree with him. Uh Uh-oh. Just by listening to him, we just came under his authority. Now he can control us. Now he can mess with us. Now he can harm us. Because we've come out of the, from under the protection of the Lord. Okay, so we talked about that week one. And this is why deception is his number one thing. This is why deception is so important. Because he has to get us to agree. Once we agree, we experience horrible consequences. But here's a key, and I want you to hear me. He does not want us to associate the consequences with agreeing with him. He wants us to think it's totally separate. It's just a totally different issue. And so we're so prideful, and we're free, and we can do whatever we want. So I'm going to, you know, I know what God says about sexual morality, but I'm just going to do what I want. And as long as I'm responsible and everybody's consensual, it'll all be fine. And then we have utter pandemics breaking out of sexually transmitted diseases. 
Some of you are too young to remember the AIDS epidemic. I was a kid when that was going on. It was horrific. Not to mention all the other STDs and everything. Do you know how many STDs you'll get if you're a virgin and your spouse is a virgin and you get married? Do you know how many you'll get? Zero. It's impossible. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting, church? But the moment you step outside of God's protective laws, perhaps it's not a restriction, perhaps it's a protection from a good and loving father, now you open yourself up to all kinds of stuff. And man, perhaps it's not just natural. I'm just going to say it perhaps. I'm just going to throw a what if out there. What if God, I'm allowed to do that. Paul does it in the Bible. What if God? What if we just step out of his protection? And what if those diseases are not from God as punishment? What if they're from the enemy? Because we've opened up ourselves to the enemy. And we know in New Testament that the enemy, the devil, can afflict people with diseases because Jesus set some people free. It says he set them free from the power of the devil and they had physical afflictions in their body. What if? Isn't spiritual warfare important? It's really important. What if now we're in, now the, the 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 vaccine schedule for little babies is is the uh, is it HPV or the whatever the cervical cancer is for ladies? You know when you share your body, sex is so powerful. When you share your body with somebody, you've not only one one uh, uh, scientist. I forget which type of scientist uh, said this. When you have sex with someone, you're not only having sex with them. You're having sex with everyone they've had sex with and everyone they've had sex with and everyone they've had sex with and everyone they've had sex with. And by the way, that happens spiritually too. So if they got demons, mm-hmm, you're opening yourself up to their demons. Why? Because it's a one flesh thing. Whew. So no wonder God drew such a strong boundary around human sexuality. And man, I can't keep preaching on that. Yeah. Parents, if you train your kids up in the way they should go, young ladies, young men, if you do it God's way, you don't need to worry about HPV. It's just that simple. Well, give them a condom because they might not be obedient. An elder, one of my friends growing up, he said, look what my parents gave me. We were like 12, 13. It was a condom. I was like, this, this guy's dad was an elder in our church. And as a 12, 13-year-old, I was like, this is bad. This is bad. Why is this happening? He said, yeah, you know how you should live, but just in case you don't, use this. Wow, parents, way to really undermine everything you're trying to teach your kids. And do you think they're going to take you seriously? No, they will not. Oh, I don't have time to get into that. We use excuses. We use excuses to undermine the teaching of God. Well, I know what you're saying, but they won't do it. Yeah, they won't. With that attitude, they won't. I'll tell you what I tell my kids. With that attitude, it won't happen. That's for sure. Well, what if they, what if they don't listen? What if they, what if they get HPV? What if I should get the vaccine? It's a fallback. What if, what if, what's all that sound like? Fear, worry. 
Which brings me to my next point, intimidation. It's spiritual warfare. Wake up and stop believing his lies so you undermine the word of God in your kids' lives. Jesus, help us. He wants to deceive you, and he wants to disassociate the consequences with his work. Here's why. Because if we're experiencing horrible consequences that are a result of the spiritual warfare in our lives, but we don't, we're unaware, we don't realize it's him, he gets to stay. Even you can treat the symptoms and the consequences all you want, and it will not matter because he gets to stay. So if he's the one causing your depression or anxiety, he doesn't care if you go get medicine. He probably likes it if you go get medicine. Why? Because he gets to stay. If he's the one causing your marital issues, well, let's just get divorced because you suck and you think I suck and let's just get divorced. He's fine with that. As long as he gets to stay. If he's the one causing the block that's keeping you from understanding or experiencing more of God, and he wants you to think it's the church you go to, or that even God is withholding from you somehow, that's fine with him because he gets to stay. Just don't really think too much about the spiritual warfare thing or the enemy. You know, just keep going, God, God, please help me. Why won't you help me? Oh, God, God. Oh, God, you're the problem. You're withholding. I've been praying. It's not working. But I'm not really going to think about that enemy guy. I, surely it couldn't be something I've done. Surely it couldn't be spiritual warfare in my life. Because he gets to stay. Now, I say this because I've seen this. I've seen it play out. He deceives, deceives, deceives. Once you become aware, oh, now we move to strategy two. Intimidate. Intimidation. Now you know. Can't deceive that anymore. Now I have to intimidate you into backing off so I get to stay. Quick story on this. I'll probably preach more on this story next time, but I don't have time to go all into it. But it's a really funny story, really. Acts 19, 13 through 16, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. Often they, or I'm sorry, they would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. They're driving out demons, trying to, in the name of Jesus. This is actually the right strategy. Right strategy, but it doesn't work because they don't know Jesus themselves. We'll talk about that more next time. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? No relationship. They're not Christians, but they're trying to use Jesus' name. That won't work, and we'll know why next time when we talk about authority. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Now that's every horror movie you've ever seen. They always send the priest. He always gets his butt kicked. And we're all still in fear. Isn't this the picture that the horror community paints? I, side note, why do they always send a priest? Why don't they send the non-denom guy in there? You never see the, non, the Pentecostal non-denom guy go in there. 
You always see the priest. You know, why is that? Maybe it'd have a different outcome. <laughs> That's a joke. I know some very empowered, awesome Catholic priests that are doing good work in deliverance. What's my point? They knew it was a demon. Oh, this dude's full of evil spirits. It's horrific. By the way, if you doubt this subject, get into the presence of someone who really has a demon. You will know in about half a second, this is not them. The evil's real, and they have, they have it. <laughs> You'll just know that. And trust me on that. They know it's a demon. They know it's real. So what's the strategy now? I'm going to kick your butt. And apparently rips their clothes off. Like, how did that happen? Like, I don't know. Seven guys get their clothes ripped off. What did this battle look like? I don't know. I find it humorous. It was not humorous for the people involved, and we give our condolences to the victims. But, man, that's crazy. That's kind of funny when you think about it. They got their butts kicked. Intimidation. Intimidation. Hear me, church. Oppression is intimidation. Oppression is intimidation. Manifestations of oppression. What do I mean by that? Explicit, overt manifestations of evil, of the demonic. Why is this happening to me? That was scary. That's the point. They want to intimidate you. What can that look like? It can look like a whole lot. Hearing voices, they literally appear to you and say scary things to you. Nightmares, demonic dreams, appearing in your house or your room, hearing voices, footsteps, all that junk. It could go on and on. It's intimidation. They're trying to get you to back off. I've known several people, a few people here who come to church here were unbelievers, had a severe demonic manifestation in their house. I prayed with one young man right over here a couple years ago, had a very demonic dream, woke up, and he himself was doing things from the dream that were not good. And he was freaked out. We call that the devil overplayed his hand. It pushed this kid to church. I go, well, here's what happened. That was a demon. And they were messing with you. And do you believe in Jesus? No, I've, I've never received him. Okay, do you want to? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I do. Okay, let's do that. We pray. I'm like, cool. Now you have the power and authority of Christ, which we'll talk about next week. Go home and pray this prayer. They'll leave you alone. They have to be careful, especially in our country, how they play this game. Because there's a lot of Christians in this country. And if they overplay their hand and we become aware, oh, crap, the crazy pastor where I kind of left the church because he started talking about spiritual warfare and I thought he was crazy. He's actually right. Now I'm coming back because I got demons. What do I do? Well, you're about to get free. You're about to become a powerful deliverance minister. You're about to go greater, higher in your faith than you've ever went. It's about to be awesome, and he's about to get his butt kicked by you. That's what's about to happen. And so he has to be careful. This is why deception first. The greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world it doesn't exist. While he sits up there, pulls the strings, and rules over everyone. First John 5, 19. We know we're the children of God, and the whole world is under the control of the enemy. Anyone who is not a believer in Jesus is under the power and control 
of the devil. That's the truth. That's what the word says. They might not be fully possessed by a demon, but they're under his mindsets. So he's controlling their lives, which is what he wants. By the way, some scholars believe Satan fallen angels are fallen angels. Angels were created with bodies. They don't need one. A lot of scholars believe demons are the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim, which means they want a body because they used to have one. So demons possess people. Fallen angels don't need to possess people. They want to control them. You just got a little taste of like 301, 401, okay? But he wants to control you. He wants to control you. Demons are like down here, lower level minions, looking to satisfy cravings of their flesh they used to have. Tormented beings, tormented beings, and they want to torment you, and they want to use, they want to get in you and use you. Fallen angels, they want to control you. So he's going to intimidate. What's that look like? I don't know. How about some strongholds? I've heard Christians and church leaders say, "Don't get into spiritual warfare; you'll get attacked." well, I really want to do this calling on my life, but it's a big deal. And I've heard if you really go after God, I'll get attacked. A stronghold is any high and lofty thing that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Does God's word say you should really worry and fear about doing God's will in your life and that big calling he's called you to? Does God's word say uh, don't worry so much about putting on the full armor of God and don't worry so much about taking a stand against the devil's schemes uh, because you'll get attacked. Is that God's word? No, so that's a high and lofty thought that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, which means it's a stronghold based out of what? Intimidation. Well, if I get into this, I'll be like the sons of Sceva, and I'll get, my, I'll get into a room and pray for someone, and they will rip my head off and tear my clothes off and send me out naked and bleeding. And I saw the exorcist, and that guy was a priest, and I'm not even a priest, and what is going to happen to me? And that's what they want you to think the moment you start believing they're real. Deception? Okay, now we know. Now we're aware. Oh, intimidation. So, church, we're all getting woke up through this series. We're all becoming aware. Woo! Finally. Because ignorance is not bliss. It's death. So that's a good thing. But what does that mean is coming? Intimidation. They're going to incite fear to try to push you back, to try to get you to not fight back, to not fight the battles. So be aware of that. Intimidation can look like those lies. It can look like fearing demons in general, fearing uh, they can harm you in some way if you try to fight back. Oppression is intimidation, greater attacks of discouragement, bad things happening in your family, bad dreams, health problems, attacks on your family and kids. It's all intimidation to try to get you to back off. And if you persevere and keep doing the will of God and keep praying and fighting in the spirit, which we're going to get into how we fight later on in the series, obviously, the more you do that, the more they learn, I can't win against this person. So, deception, then intimidation, but you don't need to fear. 
These are things to be aware of. You don't need to fear it if the devil himself showed up in your room. Okay? That might be a scary experience. Have courage. Stand in faith. Let me tell you how to respond to that. Smith Wigglesworth apparently had that happen to him at one point in his life. In his life. He was a, a well-known Christian back in the early 1900s, right? A very powerful man of God. Didn't really start operating in that until his 50s. So there's a word of encouragement for some of you in the latter half of life. Becomes a very powerful man of God. Does many great miracles and signs and wonders. It affected millions of people in his lifetime, right? Apparently the story goes, he's known for, he had raised several people from the dead apparently. I mean, just crazy faith this guy had. And power and anointed by God. Apparently woke up one night. Sensed something in his room. He rolled over. He said the devil himself stand there. And you know how he responded to that? Oh, it's just you. And he rolled back over and went to sleep. So we need to be aware. We need to expect attacks. We need to expect oppression. We need to expect intimidation. But we don't need to fear it. Why? Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. If I asked you if Jesus fought the devil, who would win? Jesus, right? Sunday school answer. It's easy. Who's in you? Some angel? Who's in you? Some saint of the past? No. The risen Christ is in you. The same power that rose Christ from the dead, which is the same power that overcame all the power of the enemy because they gave him all he had. They killed him, and the power of God rose him up from the dead and was like, you got any more? Because I can take that too. That lives in you. But if you want to be victorious, you have to know that. You have to understand that. You have to stand in that. You have to be confident in that. You have to have faith. I love this promise from Jesus. Luke 10, 18 and 19. His disciples returned from casting out demons, actually. And he says this, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And verse 19 is just one of the most powerful verses in spiritual warfare. There's three really important, huge things here. I've given you authority. We'll talk about that next time. That's a huge thing. To trample on snakes and scorpions. Second big thing. And to overcome all the power of the enemy. Not a little bit. Not some. All of it. And third thing. Promise from God. Nothing will harm you. Well, don't get into spiritual warfare because you might get attacked. Jesus gives us a promise to negate that stronghold in Christians. Nothing will harm you. Now you don't have an excuse. Removes that excuse from your playbook. Because nothing will harm you. That's his promise. In the context of, this isn't a promise as you're walking through life, oh, nothing's ever going to harm me because I have Jesus. No, when you're engaging the enemy in conflict, in battle, in warfare, Nothing will harm you. Nothing will harm you. So, deception, intimidation. Let's, let's, let's sum it all up. Who is this guy? The devil, super high-ranking, powerful angel. Rebelled against God, fallen to the earth. He has a whole bunch of fallen angels and minions, demons at his disposal. The kingdom of darkness. The whole world is under their control and power. 1 John five nineteen. the whole world. Anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus, which means this, a majority of your friends and family, 
a majority of people in this region. Only about 33% of people even say they go to church. Just because you go to church doesn't mean that you know Jesus. But we're talking vast majority of people on the earth and in this region are under the power and control of the enemy. You need to know that. And you think this doesn't affect you on a daily basis when everybody's under the control and power of the enemy? His main tools are deception and intimidation. I mean, if the main tool is deception, how important is it that you know the word of God? Temptation of Jesus three times. He was tempted three times. He responded with, it is written. Satan tempted him with scripture. It's also written. And how did Jesus respond? It's also written. Yeah, you know scripture, but I know it better than you do. (laughs) You're applying it wrong. And I know it well enough to tell you that to your face. So I'm not going to believe that lie. So the next time that shame and condemnation comes for you, church, do you know the word of God? Do you preach the gospel to yourself? It's just the gospel. Forget about knowing the whole Bible. Oh, I suck so bad. Oh, God probably hates me. I'll probably go to hell. The gospel. That is for your mistakes and failures. It removes your shame. That is not God making you feel that way. Get off me, shame. Get off me, devil. Get off me, condemnation. I rebuke. I renounce you in the name of Jesus. Thank you, God, once again for the cross. I repent. My heart's clean before you. Thank you for the cross. Fill me with your spirit. Thank you for forgiveness. I'm walking in freedom today. Praise God. So, now we know the enemy. Now we know who he is, what he's doing. Expect his attacks. Expect intimidation. Just pray. Just pray. Stand in the word of God. You also need to know your power and your authority in Christ, who you are in Christ. Remember the quote from Sun Tzu. If you know your enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of 100 battles. And so next time we talk about this, we're going to talk about who we are in Christ, our authority in Christ to engage in warfare and to bring the kingdom on the earth in a whole lot of other ways. And that's going to be a powerful, powerful message, really foundational. You don't want to miss it. I don't know if we're going to do it next week because next weekend is Pentecost weekend and we're going to go after uh, the Holy Spirit uh, and uh, Lord willing, talk about impartation, do some impartation uh, over the church. Um, That's what I'm planning, Lord willing. Uh, We'll see what the Lord has in store. And then I plan to pick this back up the next weekend, the first weekend in June. And so uh, you don't want to miss next weekend. Again, first weekend, Saturdays and Sundays. Invite friends and family Saturday night. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a spirit-filled, awesome time together, especially if you have Christian friends and family who are like, I'm not sure about the Holy Spirit. I've never experienced that. What's that like? Invite them, and they can experience uh, what a spirit-filled church atmosphere is like, okay? Let's pray. God, I just thank you for our time together. I bless this church. I bless our family. And I thank you for your blessing, your anointing, your favor on it. And we just commit ourselves to you. And we love you, Lord. And Jesus, I just thank you. I thank you today that greater are you within us than greater than he that is in the world. And I just thank you for that. And I thank you that you've given us power and authority to trample on him. And that nothing will harm us. And we can overcome all the power of the enemy. I thank you for these truths from your word. We love you, Jesus. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen.